I should like in a brief word to express my sense of pleasure and of privilege of being here this morning and also to thank the pastor for his very kind and over-generous welcome. I find it very difficult to identify myself with the men to whom he referred and what I read on the order of service paper. I'm but a humble, I trust, servant of the Lord, privileged to expound these amazing truths that will be found in the scriptures. And this morning, I would like to read to you uh, in the same chapter from which the reading has already been taken, namely in the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 10, beginning to read at verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now those verses follow the reading at the beginning, and obviously you see that they deal with this whole question of prayer. Now these words were written to people who are described as Hebrew Christians, which means, of course, that they were Jews who had been brought up in the old Jewish religion. But having heard the gospel, they had believed it and had joined the Christian church. And clearly for a while they had been enjoying their new faith and their new life. But for a variety of reasons with which I needn't detain you, they had become somewhat discouraged and despondent. One of the reasons, which is dealt with later on in this very chapter, was that they were being persecuted. The very fact that as Jews they had become Christians would lead to persecution. They'd been cut out of their families, robbed of their goods, molested and treated in a most malicious manner. And this is always a very depressing experience. That had happened to them. And there were various other factors. And the result of all this was that they'd become not only discouraged and despondent, they'd even become doubtful of their faith. And many of them were beginning to look back to the old religion, the old temple worship and its ceremonial, and wondering whether they hadn't been a little bit precipitate in leaving this old religion, which after all had stood the test of centuries, and taking up and espousing this new teaching. Well, now that was their condition. Unhappy, discouraged, full of doubts and uncertainties and hesitations concerning the faith. And this, of course, affected the whole of their lives. But there was nothing more serious about it than the way in which it affected their prayer life. The Christian is a man who lives by prayer. Our Lord himself taught us this. He said that men should always pray and not faint. The alternative to fainting is praying. It's the one antidote to all the troubles in the Christian life. But the question is, how can a man who's become uncertain about his faith pray at all? So this man, amidst his many exhortations to them, 
here reminds them of the only way in which anyone can ever pray. And I know of nothing that is more important than this, just at this present time, in this difficult world in which we are living. Ultimately, we have no resource except that which we have in God. There is nothing more important therefore, for all of us than to know exactly how to pray and to pray with confidence. Do you notice that this man says, let us come boldly, which means with confidence. We must pray with confidence. And later he uses the term full assurance of faith. That's how we are meant to pray. Not doubtfully, not uncertainly, not hesitantly, but boldly, confidently assured, and with this absolute certainty of faith. So, my dear friends, the question we must all ask ourselves before we proceed any further is simply this. Where does prayer come in our lives? What's our view of prayer? Does prayer help us? Do we know what we are doing when we pray? Do we pray with confidence, with assurance, with certainty? Nothing is more important, I say, than at the present time, than that we should be clear upon this vital matter. Now, let me put it like this to you. I wonder whether we've ever realized the difficulties in connection with prayer. Sometimes I find people have never even got as far as that. And there, of course, uh, there are teachings which would have us believe that to pray is simple. I remember hearing a man once saying that to pray is just like breathing. No problem, no difficulty. And there are those interested in ecumenicity and world church and so on. They're very fond of saying something similar. They say we mustn't discuss doctrine because that divides them. But they say there's one thing we can always do. We can always pray together. The idea is that prayer is something very simple. And there was a teaching popular in your country and in my country a few years back which said that all one needed to do in order to pray was just to sit in a comfortable chair to relax and to begin to listen to God. It was as simple as that. A child speaking to his father. No problem, no difficulty. Well, that's not the teaching of the New Testament. The teaching of the New Testament is that in a sense, there is nothing which is so difficult as prayer. Of course, we can get onto our knees and talk to ourselves or think beautiful thoughts, but that's not praying. Praying means talking to God and knowing that we are doing so. Now, this man was aware of all this because these people were finding their prayer very difficult and he wants to help them. So he shows them the difficulties in connection with prayer and how alone these difficulties can be overcome. What are the difficulties in connection with prayer? Well, let me note them to you. Here's the first. Prayer means entering into the holiest, into the holiest of all. What does that mean? He says, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest. Well, now, there's no difficulty about this. These people, as I've reminded you, have been brought up as Jews. And they were familiar with the temple and the construction of the temple. And before that, the old tabernacle in the wilderness. 
And do you remember that these buildings were divided up into various sections? There was an outer court into which anybody could enter. Then there was a next court into which the Jews only could enter. Then there was a place which was called the holy place, into which the priests alone could enter. Then there was a curtain, a veil, and beyond that was that innermost sanctum, which was called the holiest, or the holiest of all. And into that only one man was allowed to enter, and that was the high priest. And even he was only allowed to enter once a year. Now why was this? What was there special and peculiar about this innermost sanctum called the holiest or the holiest of all? Well, the answer was this. It was there that God, as it were, came down to meet the people. He went into that place, and there there was an ark containing the tables of the law and a mercy seat over it, and cherubim covering that. But above all, there was a strange light there, which was called the Shekinah glory, a kind of luminosity. That was the representation of the presence of the living God. And that is why this place was so special, and only this one man was allowed to enter into it. And as you read, the accounts in the Old Testament of the high priest entering in there once a year to make atonement for the sins of the people, you will read that when he went in, the people waited outside in fear and trembling. Why? Well, he was going into the presence of the living God. And God is holy and just and righteous. And the question was whether God would accept the offering whether this man would not be killed by the holiness and the justice of God, whether they'd ever see him again. So they used to wait and listen. And the moment they heard the sound of the jingling of the bells at the bottom of the high priest's robe, they were filled with happiness and rejoicing. They knew that the offering had been accepted, their sins were covered, and they could go on for another year. Well now, this is what this man's talking about. Prayer, he says, means Entering into the holiest, entering into the very presence of the living God. And this is a tremendous thing. This is an awful thing. This man was so impressed by this that at the end of chapter 12, he comes back to it again and he puts it like this. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. No question of running into the presence of God and saying, Dear God, and an easy familiarity. No, no. Reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Now here is the great problem in connection with prayer. Here we are finite, fallible creatures, and then we enter into the presence of this great and august being, immortal, invisible God, only wise, in light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes. Most glorious, most perfect, the ancient of days, pavilioned in splendor, 
and girded with prayers. How can one enter into such a presence? Who shall dwell, asks Isaiah, with the burning light, the burning fire? It seems impossible. The very greatness and the glory, the ineffability, the holiness of God seems to make it quite impossible for us. And we have to realize this, that that is what we do when we try to engage in prayer. But then he goes on to say that there's a second difficulty, and that is what he calls an evil conscience. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. We know something about this, don't we? We can justify ourselves before men. But the moment we get on our knees and are in the presence of God, our conscience begins to act and to accuse us. It condemns us. It brings our sins back to us. And we feel that we are speechless. And we feel that we have no right to pray at all. We are suddenly reminded of all our evil and sins and transgressions. Now, I needn't keep you with this. There's a perfect statement of all this in a very familiar psalm, Psalm 51. David had committed certain terrible sins, but he seemed to feel that everything was all right. But then it was brought home to him by the prophet Nathan, and he writes his 51st psalm. And he cries in agony, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness." According to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Now this is the accusations of conscience. And that's what happened to the poor prodigal son when he came to himself, wasn't it? He was perfectly happy until he was suddenly awakened realized the folly and the enormity of what he'd done, the way he'd wounded and grieved his father, and he feels he's unworthy to be called a son. He doesn't know what to do with himself. Accusations of conscience. How do you answer them? We can answer men, but how do you answer God and his holy law, which we know that we have transgressed and offended? Well, there's the second difficulty. But you know there was a third, and this is even worse. He talks here about having our bodies washed with pure water. What is this? Well, this is what we call the pollution of sin. The guilt of sin is bad enough, but there's something worse. And that is the pollution of sin. You see, the difference is this. At first, one is worried only by the things that one has done. Worried as to how these can be blotted out. But there's a stage beyond that. And then you begin to be worried by this. What is it in me that ever made me desire to do those things, leave alone do them? What was it that ever prompted me or urged me to do such things? And you realize it's due to a polluted nature, an evil nature, something rotten in our very constitution. Listen to David expressing all this. Having acknowledged his sin and having asked for mercy, he says, Wash me, wash me truly from mine iniquities and cleanse me from my sin. Behold, he says, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. 
Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. He now realizes the trouble is inside him. He was guilty, as you remember, of adultery and of murder, but that isn't what worries him now. What worries him is this, that he should ever have desired to do these things. This evil nature, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean, wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Then the final prayer, create in me a clean heart, O God. He doesn't merely want to be clean outside, create, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Now, this is the problem of prayer. How can a man with such a nature enter into the presence of God who is light and in whom is no darkness at all? It seems impossible. We seem so unclean, so unworthy, so vile. How can a man possibly enter into the presence of God and offer prayer? Shall I sum it all up for you? In the lines of a well-known hymn by Thomas Binney, Eternal light, eternal light. How pure the soul must be, that placed within thy searching sight it shrinks not, but with calm delight can live and look on thee. Oh, how can I, whose native sphere is dark, whose mind is dim, before the ineffable appear, and on my naked spirit bear that uncreated being. Have you ever felt that, my friends? I don't think we've ever prayed unless we know something about this. Prayer isn't just talking to our, ourselves or uttering our pious hopes and thoughts and aspirations. It's entering into the presence of God and his uncreated beam flashing upon the innermost parts of our souls and our very existence. That's prayer. It seems impossible. Our very minds are dark. Our native sphere is dark. Our minds are dim. How can we ever do this? He says the spirits that surround thy throne may bear the burning bliss, but that is surely theirs alone, for they have never, never known a fallen world like this. How can I? It seems impossible. Well, now there are the difficulties in the way of prayer. Prayer is not easy. It's the very last lesson that the Christian rarely learns in a true sense. How is it possible? How can one overcome these initial obstacles and apparent impossibilities? Fortunately, this man tells us. Thank God for the gospel. The first thing he tells us that is absolutely essential is that we should have a true heart. Let us draw near with a true heart. What does that mean? Well, that just means sincerity. We have to be sincere with God. We can delude ourselves, we can fool others, but not God. As David put it there, though, desirous truth in the inward parts. Thou understandest my thoughts. Afar off, indeed this man in the fourth chapter has already made this abundantly plain and clear. Listen to him putting it. He says, the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit 
and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So we've got to be sincere. We've got to have a true heart. You can't hide anything from God. You can't give him 99% and keep back 1%. He knows all about us. So we must be honest and open and sincere. It's a bare essential. But even that isn't enough. Sincerity doesn't admit into the presence of God. Something further is needed. And thank God it's there. This is the great theme of this little paragraph that I'm holding before you this morning. He says that there is a new and a living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. He says, in spite of these difficulties, there is a new and a living way. Now, this ought to appeal to us all at the present time. We are living in days of expressways, parkways, these great arterial roads, bypassing towns, taking us direct to our destination. That's the idea here. And he applies this to these people. He says, I can't understand you. You're looking back to the old way, to the old temple, the old Jewish religion. I'm amazed, he says, that you should even look back and think of going back with the new and the living way that's been opened for us. You notice he emphasizes this word new. It's the difference between the old dispensation and the new dispensation. The Old Testament and the New Testament. He says, are you going back? The thing is incredible. And you know, my friends, I feel we need to consider this text at the present time. There are people, even Christian people, who seem to want to go back to some old temple and ritual and priesthood and ceremonial that has long since been put right out of date and never in a sense was Christian at all. And here's a new and a living way in the meantime. Isn't it astonishing that people always want to revert to some old way that was fallible and passing and transient instead of continuing on the new way. That's one thing. But then he calls it, you notice, a living way. What does he mean by this? Well, if you notice the reading, you've got the answer. The trouble about that old way was that it was dependent upon men. It was dependent upon an earthly human priesthood. And the trouble with those old priests was that they got older and they began to fail and they died and you needed a new priesthood. Constantly changing. But, says this man, we've not only got a new way, it's a living way. It's always alive. He's been making this point in chapter 7. He puts it like this. They truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost who come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. It's a living way. Your priests, your popes, they come and go. Here is one who abides forever, unchangeable, Jesus Christ the same, yesterday, today, and forever. A new way and a living way. How has it been made? Well, he tells us. 
He says that this new way has been made in a most extraordinary manner. And it has been made by the Son of God himself. Which he hath consecrated for us, he says, through the veil that is to say his flesh. How can a man enter into the presence of God? There's only one answer. It is by Jesus Christ and him crucified. He is the new way. He is the living way. Did you notice the reading? When he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. You know, when you make these new highways, it's very important you should have a good foundation, isn't it? Otherwise, it'll begin to crack and subside and there'll be troubles. You, you lay a firm foundation strong enough to bear the weight of the traffic that's going to pass along it. And it's essential here. And what's the foundation of this road? It is the incarnation. The Word was made flesh. The eternal Son of God, a body as thou prepared me. He was made in the likeness of men. He was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. Here's the foundation. Man alone had failed in Adam. God alone can't represent us. You need both. The God-man. The two natures in the one person. Here's the foundation of this mighty new and living way along which alone we can travel. God hath visited and redeemed his people. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. But that's only the foundation. What else? He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And you notice he says, let us have boldness to enter by the blood of Jesus. Now, now, the incarnation alone wasn't enough. It was essential, but he came in order to die. As this man puts it in chapter 2, verse 9, he was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. That he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. The broken body, the shed blood, the veil, that is to say, his flesh and the blood. What does this mean? Well, my dear friends, it's the heart of the gospel. There is only one way whereby a man can approach God. It is by a sacrifice. Without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. That's why you had all your sacrifices, burnt offerings and sacrifices in the Old Testament. That's why a lamb was killed morning and evening. But that's not enough. That simply covered it over temporarily. That's the old way, the dying way. What's the new way? Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. God hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. God has punished your sins and mine in the body of his own son on the cross on Calvary's hill. His broken body, his shed blood is the way of forgiveness. God hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Or as Peter puts it, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. It is the only way, the way to God, the, the direct way, the new way, the living way, the incarnation. 
the life of obedience, the death upon the cross, the substitutionary suffering, the sacrifice once and forever. And then his ascension, and he is seated at the right hand of God, ever living to make intercession for us. Now, here is the teaching. And this man looks at these people and he says, Are you looking back to that old way? Do you want to go back to an earthly human priesthood with its repetition of sacrifices and offerings? The thing is monstrous. Have you forgotten the Son of God? Have you forgotten what's happened? Have you forgotten that here is the only way, the new, the living way, the only satisfactory way, the certain assured way, appointed and planned by God himself before the very foundation of the world? Don't you think we need to hear this word of exhortation today? Isn't it tragic that men are talking about the repetition of the sacrifice of the death of the Son of God daily, something worked by priests? My dear friends, have we forgotten the glorious history of the Reformation and of the Pilgrim Fathers and all the mighty men who have gone before us? No, no, let's never look back again. Let's walk along the new and the living way. But is it adequate? Is it sufficient? Does this really give me assurance? And the answer is an eternal yes. It solves all the problems. Can I face God? I can. This is God's own appointment. It is God's own plan and scheme. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It was God who was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. It's his own way, specially prepared to admit us into his holy presence. Does it answer the condemnation of his holy law? Yes, Christ is the end of the law for sin to everyone who believes in it. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of God might be fulfilled in us. Yes, it deals with that. What about my own conscience? The answer is still the same. If Our hearts condemn us. God is greater than our hearts and knoweth all things. Whatever my heart may say to me, I know that the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin, that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we acknowledge and confess our sins. It silences my conscience. But ah, There's one more difficulty. The devil, the accuser of the brethren, the adversary, the one who follows us everywhere and haunts us and mocks us and raises our past sins and horrifies us at the sight of them and reminds us of the holiness of the law of God. How can I answer the accusations of Satan? The answer is still the same. They overcame him, says the book of Revelation, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Your adversary, the devil, says Peter, as a roaring lion, 
rumours about seeking whom he may devour. How do you deal with him? Whom resist steadfast in the faith. Resist the devil in Christ and he will flee from you. Or let old John Newton put it for us most gloriously once and forever. Be thou my shield and hiding place. That sheltered near thy side. I may my fierce accuser face and tell him thou hast died. And he can't answer. Shield yourselves in the side, the bleeding side of Jesus Christ. And there you'll be able to answer your fierce accuser. And tell him that Christ has died for you. And he'll be unable to answer you. Or let me close by putting it again in the remainder of that hymn of Thomas Binney that I've already quoted to you. You remember where he left us? Eternal light, eternal light. How pure the soul must be, the placed within thy searching sight. It shrinks not, but with calm delight can live and look on thee. And then the impossibility, how can I whose native sphere is dark, whose mind is dim before the ineffable appear, and on my naked spirit bear that uncreated beam. Is it impossible? No, no. There is a way for men to rise to that sublime abode, an offering and a sacrifice, a Holy Spirit's energies, an advocate with God. These these prepare us for the sight of holiness above. The sons of ignorance and night can dwell and shall dwell with the eternal light through the eternal love. The difficulties are real, but they've been overcome. And overcome alone in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The new way, the living way, the only way, whereby man, in spite of all that is true of him, can enter into the holiest of all and speak to God with confidence as his Father, knowing that he is accepted, knowing that he is loved with an everlasting love, knowing that the very hairs of his head are all numbered, knowing that nothing can happen to him apart from God, through Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today. Yes, and though they let off all their bombs together and the world be convulsed in the final convulsion, and forever. The one thing to make certain of in this uncertain world is that our feet are firmly planted on the new and living way and that we are walking and marching, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, how can we thank thee sufficiently for love so amazing, so divine? Forgive us that we so often in our folly, like those poor Hebrew Christians, 
will persist in looking back to our own works or to some external religious observances and rites and formularies. God, have mercy upon us. Open our blind eyes, we pray thee, and by thy Spirit, so enlighten our understandings that we shall see the fullness and the finality and the freeness of this new and living way which thou hast made for us in the Son of thy love. Lord, receive our unworthy praise. Shed thy love abroad in our hearts, and so fill us with it that we shall spend the rest of our time in this passing evanescent world singing the praises of him who loved us even unto death and ever liveth to make intercession for us. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now this day throughout the remainder of this our short uncertain earthly life and pilgrimage and until we shall stand in the presence of God and see our Savior face to face and be made like unto him in glory. Amen.